You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. This week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm David Grubbs, a professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas, and, well, I'm at the helm this week. With me this week, like most of the rest of them, is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's this week treating you, Nathan? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. Today is my last day of writing classes for the semester, which is always a, a landmark. Tomorrow will be my last day of Old English, and then next week will be finals. So uh, I would say I'm headed toward the end, but more uh, precisely, I'm headed for Maymester philosophy class. Uh, you teach in the same one as, as you did before, Nathan, or is it something different? Yeah, I, I rotate between uh, religion and philosophy, which is a humanities course, and then philosophy 200, which is an you know, obviously introductory philosophy course, hence the title. But you, you did uh, that one a few years ago with McIntyre and Nietzsche. Is that what you're doing? No, this summer I'm doing the one that's mainly Plato and Aristotle. Will those lectures also be available online for our listeners who are interested? Uh, no, because none of my actual students downloaded them last time, so I'm not going to bother producing them this time. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and, and honestly, I mean, I'm doing more of the Plato and Aristotle one just because it's listed as philosophy, so people who are going into grad programs that need three hours of philosophy – that's the only philosophy course Emanuel College offers, so if I don't teach it, it don't get taught. Uh, see, I thought that the young people were all about this electronic plugged-in age, and that if you gave them, you know, vectors of instruction that they could get through their various flat-screened touch things. They're all about online video games and easily downloadable pornography. That is the sense in which they're all about electronic media. And also right. playing on the phone while uh, class is going on. Oh, okay. I thought they were just smiling down at their crotch. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're saying that total, total depravity still applies when it comes to, you know, youth and technology. It becomes even totaler. <laughs> and, and what I'm saying is if anyone tells you that today's 18-year-olds are a tech-savvy generation... Slap them once for me. It's true because I mean, how many how many times have you had to teach them how to format a word document? Uh huh. Like there there are students who who literally don't know how to change the font. Oh man, our listeners, you guys can tell that this is the uh, end of the semester. <laughs> tomorrow yeah, so tomorrow comes starts my papers start flowing in, and after that, I'm never going to be happy again. Yes, oh, what Michael I just said is literally true. It is neither synecdoche <laughs> nor litotes. Well, I, I should note at this point that half of this surly pedagogical conversation, uh, well, a third of it anyway, is uh, Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Louis. <laughs> so the surliest, the surliest third of the conversation, I think. <laughs> consider yourself greeted, sir. <laughs> oh, oh <So>. man. <laughs> 
Oh, oh man. Buckle yeah. up. Yeah, yeah this going this gonna be one of those days. Yeah. I, I hope our I hope our listeners are, are aware what happens to us at the end of the semester with these last episodes. It's always well, most us. of them have been le- listening for a while. But... Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's a kind of it's a kind of I don't know giddiness. I don't know. I'm not not entirely sure what to right. punchy as, is the is the word I like to use. Yes, as Saint Peter That's says it. in Acts two, we're not drinking yet. It's only nine in the morning. We'll wait till at least ten. <laughs> Depends on when those papers come in. I will say this. I will say this. Grading a huge stack of papers way easier when I used to smoke cigarettes. <laughs> I, I never, I never miss it as much as I do when I'm grading a big stack of papers. Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> Still got narcotics though. Oy. Well, uh, before we get into our topic. Um, any other any other kind of news or whatever we want to tip our hats at? Uh, a number of you have been sending in emails. We have been looking at them. I've responded to a couple of them. I know Michael's responded to a couple. We are planning to do a listener feedback episode this summer. So don't despair if you haven't heard your email on the show yet. Uh, you still may or may not. <laughs> we got We got very few for a long time, and then we got like 10 of them last week. We, after it already announced that this was the last one of the episode or the season, oh man, <laughs> it is the end of the semester. Um, we also have an announcement about Danny Anderson, don't we? Yes, we do. Uh, since I'm his colleague, at least for the next week and a half, I'll go ahead and make that announcement. Uh, Danny has taken a job as an assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College uh, in Pennsylvania. I forget the name of the town. So he will be departing from Emmanuel College to head back north. Uh, he will all, well, yeah, I mean, you know, he'll be teaching. And I, I don't know if our listeners will, you know, appreciate this or not, but one of the courses he'll be teaching in the fall will be conspiracy theories in literature. So if you've listened before to the stretches where Danny's been on, you'll appreciate that. Was that a class that was on the books at Mount Aloysius, or is it like one he made up? No, basically every composition class out at, at Mount Aloysius is a special topics class. Gotcha. Okay. Because uh, I thought if that class was on the books, no wonder they hired Danny. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well they, they actually advertised for a uh, werewolf specialist. A Jewish werewolf specialist. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, 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 it's, it's on the books, but it's the book that's printed out of uh, kind, of, kind of a rogue printing press in one of the furnace rooms. <laughs> and I would be remiss if I did not um, call it Mount Bootylicious, which is what D- Danny keeps suggesting I'm going to call it. So I would hate to let him down. And if any of our <laughs> listeners are, you know, employees of that college, uh, Danny didn't tell us that, we promise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He doesn't call it that. No, no, he, 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 he assumed that I would call it that. Oh! Yes. <laughs> yes. The yeah. way he refers to my college's town is St. Bonaducci. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, congratulations to Danny Anderson. It's, yes. a, it's, a good, it's a good semester for guys named Dan who work for this uh, network. That's true. That's true. So if you're an academic and your name is Dan, uh, you know, send us a CV. We'll see if we can get you a show. <laughs> <laughs> I think we. I think we have an opening for the Sectarian Review if somebody else wants to put that together. (laughs) It burns! (laughs) But (sighs) oh. 
Yes, yes, yes. Well. And one, and one, oh. other, one other announcement. We talked about this right before we started recording. This is, this is our last episode of the semester. We'll probably have at least three over the summer. That is the, the typical rate. And then also the uh, profiles will continue over the summer as long as we have interviews to, to post. And that hasn't been a problem so far. So. Right. And right now we're on a pace to go at least through the end of May with profiles. Yeah. So keep listening. Um, don't, don't get rid of your subscription after you listen to this episode. And, you, you know, we usually do one a month in the summer. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, on to our topic today, which, you know, dear listener, you never thought we were going to get there, did you? You just thought we were just going to keep doing this forever. <laughs> it's, you, uh, you know, it's like that Elvis Presley album, Having Fun with Elvis on Stage. Do you guys know that album? <laughs> <laughs> it's just his between song patter for all these concerts. <laughs> we should do an episode like that, Having Fun with the Christian Humanist Podcast on Stage. And announce it ahead of time so that everyone can delete it immediately <laughs> upon receipt. Burn this letter. I think it's actually the best Elvis album. <laughs> wow. Sorry, so, David. T- take it away. Yes. So, yeah. I, as I uh, alluded to at the end of our episode last week, um, one of my bad habits? Anyway, habit. Uh, is w- whenever I'm in someone else's space and they have a bookshelf, whether it's an office or a home I'm visiting or whatever, um, I-, I tend to gravitate over to bookshelves and I start to, you know, kind of look over them to see what kind of person, you know, I, I-, I happen to be hanging out with at the moment. So that's kind of the premise of this particular show, um, you know, sort of letting our uh, our listeners have a peek at our bookshelves, um, and you know, maybe get to maybe there will be some surprises, maybe there will be none at all. Um, <laughs> who knows? We'll, we'll 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 get to find out whether or not. Uh, well, how, how well you know us, dear listener. But uh, just to get us started. Um, I have an icebreaker, and I'll just sort of direct it at Nathan, and we'll go around. Um, What reading material is on your nightstand right now, and what does it tell us about you? Well, on my nightstand, and by the way, folks, uh, David Grubbs has just taken the Christian Humanist podcast into the bedroom. Oh, (laughs) yeah. The boudoir, (laughs) as I like to call it. Uh, But on my nightstand, actually, I... (laughs) Actually, I don't keep any books, and here's why, because I'm one of those people who's asleep usually before my head hits the pillow. Uh-huh. Uh, so, I mean, if I if I am prone, I'm usually unconscious. So, instead, what I usually do is, you know, whether I am cleaning up around the house or whether I'm playing with the kids or whether I'm doing whatever, you know, if I'm not, you know, coaching Little League Baseball or working or doing something else, is I'll have, you know, a book and a pen and usually a couple index cards so I can you know, make notes on it in case I want to use it later. And, you know, I'll just kind of carry that around with me wherever I go. So the things that I am carrying around right now are actually uh, a book called Contesting Catholicity, which I'm reading for Christian Humanist Profiles. I'll be conducting that interview hopefully later. Um, when I'm, And honestly, I mean, that that's one of the things that, you know, sometimes I tell people and they think that I'm an utter Philistine, but I usually don't do a whole lot of what most people consider leisure reading because I actually enjoy reading academic books and, you know, poetry and jazz like that. That's usually just what I read. I don't distinguish between 
pleasure reading and business reading, so to speak. I don't read mystery novels or science fiction novels a whole lot unless I'm actually working with them on a scholarly level. So um, that's kind of what I'm doing right now, you know. Since we've had such a good run here lately on Christian Humanist Profiles, that's largely what I've been carrying around with me to read a few pages at a time. How about you, Michael? I mean, do you do the, the leisure reading thing? Uh, well, no, I, I don't. And and I also, the only things I have on my nightstand in terms of reading materials, I have a book of variety puzzles. And I have, <laughs> uh, for some reason, uh, comedian Harry Anderson's book of uh Oh, like scams to pull on your friends. I don't know why that's in there. I bought it. I bought it at a yard sale. I must have been flipping through it. Never put it back on the shelf. But yeah, I don't. I don't read in bed, uh, and I don't. I also don't have time to read for fun. I'm uh, right now. I'm reading Updike's Couples because I'm writing a book about Updike, um, and and you know I'm reading stuff for class, and that's it. This right. is the this is the sad thing about becoming an English professor, which is you you no longer have. I no longer have the ability to read for fun because it's it's but when you read for a living it's very difficult to turn that off when you read something fluffy so I just don't read fluffy things. Yeah. And the last time I had a break incidentally from reading for Christian Humanist profiles I read a uh, biography of Napoleon for fun. <laughs> so, David, what do you got? <laughs> yeah. Man. <laughs> David's disgusted with us. I, yeah, I, I don't know what to do with you guys. I can't. I cannot go to sleep without reading. Um, I, I have to. I have to get my brain out of whatever's happening in the day and into something else before it can slow down enough to stop. So, um, I actually have a stack of books on my nightstand. Usually. I'm not even counting my Kindle, which is on my nightstand. Well, pin a rose on your nose, David. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> or thank you. Or whatever the appropriate response to that is. <laughs> um, right now I've got uh, uh, Paul's Divine Christology by Chris Tilling. See Profiles episode. Um, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Um, the Penguin Edition of Sunyata, which is an African epic, and Orlando Furioso. Are you reading those two epics for fun? I love epics. Medievalist, man. <laughs> I, you know, they're, I, I enjoy them. So, you know. Anyway. Yeah, so that's my nightstand. I actually have stuff on it that's not scams to pull on your friends, which that actually sounds kind of like a cool book. It is kind of a cool book. You know, I love uh, I love Night Court when I was a kid. So I, I saw I saw this at the uh, at some some thrift store years ago. I couldn't resist. Awesome. Well, I, I guess what this tells you about us, dear listeners, is well, either either that we go to sleep immediately, or, or that we're or that we're academics. You know, <laughs> there you go. Um. I'll shift this over to you, Michael, because you know this is this is, I guess, getting it getting into analysis of of uh, the origin of this episode. Um, I, like I said, one of my habits is examining the bookshelves of other people in order to figure them out. Is that just me, or have you, or well, either of you, ever indulged in similar diagnostic browsing? Uh, you know, in 
as far as intrusive habits go, it's it's at least a step above looking into people's medicine cabinets. That's true. <laughs> I mean, these these are things people choose to display. So yeah, it's it's hard not to when you go to somebody's house uh, to 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 file through their uh, to file through their bookshelves. Um, it's especially weird if you go to like former students' houses and see that they didn't keep any of the books from your your classes, but. <laughs> <laughs> That has happened to me never. And, and you know, the, the way they organize them can be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, of, of course, the sorts of books they have. It's hard not to judge people. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I, I'm not sure how much uh, actual response you wanted for this. But, yes, I do that. And I don't know how anybody couldn't if they care about books even a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you? Do you ever judge people? Uh, have you ever been to someone's house where they uh, um, shelve their books by color for clearly purely aesthetic reasons? Hate it. Hate it. Hate it. <laughs> Take those books away from those people and give them to people who understand books. <laughs> that is immoral. <laughs> Well, I, I think I know at least one person who files books by color, but has read all of them and knows exactly where each of them is. Uh, don't care. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> That's so but, offensive to me. Plus, it looks ugly. The The fun part about uh, putting your books in bookshelves is that they're all different colors and sizes and shapes. It's wonderful. <laughs> right, right. Well, it, it's hilarious, though. I, periodically, I'll, you know, for some reason, we have a, a subscription to Better Homes and Gardens that we never ordered. It just shows up to our house with our name on it. And we're like, oh, <laughs> um, but you browse through that thing and you've got various, you know, smiling people, you know, with show homes. And apparently all the men are investment bankers and all the women have their own stationary company that they run off of Etsy. <laughs> um, but. All of their bookshelves are – all the books are organized according to color, and they're all the coordinating colors of the room. That is vile. Like, Which like, means is. that they waited through – I don't know. you know, God knows how many secondhand stores or whatever looking for books of the right hue. And then they can never redecorate. Maybe they have a huge stack of books in the basement, and they're just waiting until they repaint the room <laughs> to bring them up. <laughs> Man, re- re- repainting the room becomes this huge investment of time, even beyond. <laughs> wow. Oh shoot. What about you, Nathan? You well, did. I mean, yeah, I mean, I I, I do this. I mean, um, I, I I generally, I mean, it's funny, you know. Speaking of the habit as intrusive, I tend to wait until people aren't looking at me to inspect their bookshelves. <laughs> uh, I. I can't look at bookshelves while people are watching, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I certainly do that. And, I mean, you know, I, I, I joke with people that, you know, it's kind of like dogs sniffing butts. That's, that's what <laughs> academics do to identify each other. Keep your tongue off their books, though, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's, it's funny, though, because I, I, I have noticed that, I mean, there's a definite – here's where I do my judging. It's, it, first of all, I've never looked at a, an issue of Better Homes and Gardens. And now that David's described that, I'm even more inclined not to. But uh, when I have students in my office to talk about, you know, paper drafts or whatever, there's a there's definitely a moment where I am judging the student based on whether or not they look at the bookshelves. Mm. 
because some students can be surrounded by a thousand volumes and never have even a moment of curiosity. And then there are the people who belong in college. Right. <laughs> I can I can always tell if a student is one of mine. You know you, you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, because they if they come over to my house they uh, they look at the books or they don't. And, and if if I catch them pulling books off the shelf, I know they're one of mine. Oh yeah, yeah. And Do then you I mean, sidle you know, up I, behind them and whisper, "One of us, one of us." I just grab them while they're paying attention to the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then also, I, I won't lie that this is a moment of pride, but periodically I'll have a, an English major or an English minor, you know, post a photograph online of their Gilmore shelf. Of is all that the, what uh, they call them? Their Gilmore shelf? Oh yeah, yeah. All the books that they had to buy for my classes. Oh yeah, yeah. I like that too. It's like a <laughs> your own little genre of library. I, th- I thought it, maybe they it, just referred to a, a a shelf heavily laden with books as the Gilmore shelf. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be cool too. <laughs> that would be cool. All right, so that's us looking at books in other ple- people's spaces. Um, I guess uh, we ought to shift into our own spaces and see what people would see there if uh, well if they visited us. So I'll start with you, Nathan. Um, and we'll start with home, and then we'll shift to offices, which I don't know. We'll, we'll see how different those are. How many books or bookshelves do you have at your home? Are your home books in public or private spaces? And what kinds of books end up being public versus private? Uh, well, first of all, I mean, the only books that, you know, end up in, you know, for instance, my bedroom are, are books that I've left on the computer desk or things like that. Uh, as far as the books that are on display, they're all down in the living room. And honestly, that's that's one of the things I like most about the house that we bought, you know, not long after Micah was born, is that the living room is really poorly designed if you want to put a TV in there, but it's really <laughs> nice if you want to sit and have conversations. So we've got, you know, the TV in a separate room. The living room is pretty much just the fireplace. And then three large bookshelves. They're all sort of your standard uh, standard issue Walmart six-foot bookshelves. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, if I want to flatter myself, I'll say that, you know, I'm too busy reading the books to spend a lot of hours building artisanal bookshelves. Uh, <laughs> really what it means is I, I'm just no good at carpentry. Uh, but, you know, as far as the books that are on there, I mean, honestly, they are from – periods of my life more than they are from, you know, any sort of genre. They are books that I had from seminary that I just haven't transported to my office. They are books that, you know, Mary owns because obviously putting those in my office would be rude. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a lot of stuff from, you know, the earlier years of my grad school. I mean, things that I acquired while I was a PhD student and while I was, while I've been a professor generally are in my office, the things that I acquired before then tend to be at home. So, uh, it is a very academic collection despite the fact that it's not in my professor's office. So how about you, Michael? Um, our house, I'm not sure is as big as yours. We live in an apartment. Um, we have a combination living room, dining room in which, all of our fiction books and reference books sit. So I'm, I'm trying to count bookcases right now. We have one tall one, one of the six foot ones. And then, 
I should have done this before the show. Six uh, smaller ones, so six of the four foot ones, I guess you'd say. All those, t- yeah, two of yeah. Them, two of them are long instead of tall, and uh, those are my wife's and I. You know, both of us have uh, an enormous number of books, and and so they're they're combined. There's no separation, and so it's literature, fiction, and then a very small shelf of reference stuff, uh, which I think is where mm-hmm. Harry Anderson actually belongs. Uh, then in our guest bedroom, we have history and music books because they wouldn't fit anywhere else. So I have one bookcase in there where they go. And, uh, in, in our bedroom, we have our philosophy, sociology, theology, literary criticism books. And, uh, I think there's two tall shelves, one tall shelf and two short shelves in there. So, um, it's a lot of stuff, and uh, I, I put the fiction books out because I figured that's what most people who would come over to the house would be interested in. Uh, nobody's going to go flip through Gautamer. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, we have way more of them, and we have way more space in the uh, living room than in the uh, the bedroom. So that is why we did it the way we did it. I mean, gotcha. Does that map in some kind of interesting way on your kind of you know public company over self versus you know private at home self? Godimer is who I am deep down, man. I I don't know. I, I uh, <laughs> if it does, it's incidentally. We didn't give that much thought. Mostly the thought I had. We were we moved from a larger apartment to a smaller one uh, last summer, and most of the thought I gave it was, "Oh my God, is everything going to fit?" <laughs> and the answer is yes, but only barely. Gotcha. All right. Well, we've got uh, three bookshelves in the living room, um, two taller ones, and then one, you know, about three foot. Um, the short one is is actually the new one. That used to be back in the guest bedroom, and it has pretty much exclusively uh, – topical theology books and uh, kind of, you know, Bible study reference stuff, thesauruses, interlinears, stuff like that. Um, The books that have been in the living room for time out of mind are almost all either nonfiction or uh, literature, especially the um, American lit and uh, and stuff that's uh, stuff 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 that's Katie's books because um, she's not she's not working now she doesn't have an office all of those books are in our living room and then the other bookshelf which is the one that frankly I I I, I will say this you know pull back the curtain um, I curated this bookshelf on the basis of what I thought people would find interesting and surprising nice. So, you know, it's books of mythology or a book about Mississippi riverboats or a book about World War II slang. You know, anyway, it's 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 this interesting, I think, an interesting miscellany of, of nonfiction. And almost no one ever looks at that bookshelf. You were so much more whimsical <laughs> than the rest of us, David. Mm. Yeah. I also judge people more when they come to my house and don't look at my attractive bookshelf. But anyway. <laughs> who goes to somebody's house without like poking around? I don't know. Maybe people are just politer here in Kansas. Anywho's right in our our bedroom is the super tall book uh, bookshelf where we keep all of our popular fiction, and it's you know it's seven foot tall, 
two books deep from top to bottom. That How thing. do you do that? I, like that would like I I, I, I I can't even talk. Two books <laughs> deep? How do you? Oh my gosh! Um, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight, David, thinking about your two fo- two book deep bookshelf. Well, I, I I do it two book deep by uh, by grouping by grouping it by author and genre, so that half of a half of an author's books are in are in the front, and the other half of that author's books are behind them. No. So that I well, <laughs> I, I, I don't have space for another bookshelf. That's but not I as al- offensive as as organizing them by color, I guess. Yeah, but see, I I always know where Dorothy Say where all of Dorothy Sayers is because it's it's either the five books I can see or the five I can't. You know, so you know. And do you, do you rotate those or do the ones in the back just have to stay back there? Uh, the ones in the back stay. Ouch. Um, the well, <laughs> they're they're not so much being sequestered as they are being kept in proximity to the bed because both Katie and I are before bed readers and, you know, periodically what I'll read before bed is just favorite fiction. And what she reads before bed is the same. So we keep, we keep the bookshelf that we pull most from for, you know, before sleepy times, uh, close in, in, in proximity. So we should really take pictures of these and post them to the Facebook page just in case anybody, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I mean, maybe maybe I'm out of line to suggest you take a picture of your bedroom, but uh, well, it would be of a bookshelf, so right. right. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if 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 you thought people were interested in that, and we could have some some kind of like not necessarily better homes and gardens, but certainly more literate, <laughs> mediocre homes and gardens, <laughs> mediocre homes, really nice libraries. <laughs> you can see all the bourgeois trappings of my life. Better red, better red homes and gardens. <laughs> I, I should note as well, and, and I imagine this will take shape for Grubs too as your kids get older. But we've also got a fourth, uh, six foot tall bookshelf in the living room, but it is filled entirely with board games. Yeah, we have a we have a big uh, tower uh, full uh, of board games. Mm-hmm. Okay, we we have we have board games, but they're not on. Well, no, I tell a lie. There are some lining the bottom of of the interesting bookshelf in the living room. Right, and largely but, we keep them out just so our kids can't throw them in closets and then wait till we discover them. <laughs> we also we also have a uh, tower full of DVDs. Ah, uh, all of our DVDs are in a chest, a big white chest, and one mm. must dig. Um. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm assuming you guys put more thought into the books that are in your office. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's a bad assumption. I've made a lot of bad assumptions so far this, this episode. <laughs> what would you have uh, done if Nathan and I were both like, yeah, we love to organize our books by color. <laughs> it's the only way to do it. I would have judged you. <laughs> um. Yeah, so well, we'll start with you, Michael. Uh, how many books? How many bookshelves in your office? What kinds of books are visible from where your visitors sit in front of the desk versus behind the desk where you are? Well, I Which... I, I think you have a false assumption. Um, mm. I have three tall bookshelves in my office. Uh, all of them are visible to everybody. None of them are behind my desk. Oh, okay. 
So I, I, I will take a picture of my office and post. I mean, you, you've definitely got to post a picture of your office, David, because um, your your office is a thing of beauty. But so yeah, I, I have I have three three bookcases. They're tall. Uh, they the books like I don't work at home. Um, for mm-hmm. the most part, I do all my writing, all my grading, all my school-related stuff at school, uh, mm-hmm. which is, you know, some feeble effort at maintaining my sanity. So the books I keep there are books that I teach, books that I reference frequently. So it's a lot of literary critical books, and uh, basically everything I own that relates to existentialism, because almost all my research has to do with that. So mm-hmm. that those are the books I keep there. Um, I. I don't think I put a lot of thought into keeping books out there that will impress the students. I figure mostly because they're stuff I use a lot. Uh, if the students are impressed by those books, uh, they will probably get along with me just fine. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Nathan? Uh, well, I've got uh, trying to think here. And see, I, I got the show notes after I left my office for the day yesterday, so I'm trying to recall rather than see what, <laughs> what my office looks like. Look into your um, mind's eye, man. That's right. <laughs> uh, I have at least four large bookshelves in my office, uh, and they are a hodgepodge because it's basically when other professors get rid of their bookshelves, I absorb them like an amoeba, um, <laughs> which... <laughs> Which honestly has been, you know, nice in this last year as, you know, Profiles has picked up and a couple other things have happened. I mean, my in-office library has definitely outstripped the three shelves that I started with. Mm -hmm. Uh, But right next to the desk on the student side of the desk is my shelf of, you know, biblical studies and theology. So I like to, you know, let the students, you know, sit close to the Jesus-y books. And then uh, on the opposite wall... Uh, I have made an attempt, and I mean, I'm, I'm always kind of refining this as I decide which end of any given author's career I want to highlight, uh, but I've got a whole mess of other books, four, four bookshelves deep, basically, of basically every genre you can think of. I mean, everything from rhetorical theory to epics to tragedies to novels to everything else in, roughly speaking, chronological order. Now, obviously, you know, because authors' careers overlap with each other, I've got to decide, for instance, you know, whether to put Schopenhauer before or after uh, the English romantics, things like that. Uh, But it's kind of nice because it's a a visual argument for the students that, you know, there are not separate worlds that we call theology and uh, epic. But rather, you know, all of these books are in conversation with each other. So, you know, mm-hmm. predictably, you know, the uh, 19th and 20th centuries are the bulkiest part. Uh, but, you know, it goes all the way back to uh, – and, and again, this is a little bit of a cheat on my part. But again, it's more of a rhetorical move than a historical move. But uh, in the very top left corner of that wall of books is uh, my deluxe edition of the Iliad and the Odyssey cool I, I i did not say how my books are organized um library of congress of course yeah <laughs> I, have a, I have a program that allows me to to do that so all my books at home and at work are library of congress order wow. which i tell you this it's real good when you need to run up to the real library and get something because uh i know just where everything i need is 
There you go. Oh, and then I, one other thing I should mention. I, I've got a shelf directly behind my desk chair where I keep the books that I am currently actively using. So books I'm teaching, books I'm currently working from in my research, things like that. And then behind, and this is one of those things where another faculty member threw these out and I absorbed them, uh, but I've actually got a uh, a gunmetal gray barrister-style bookcase, if you can imagine that weird combination. So it has Ooh. the you know the glass doors. And behind that, I've only got two uh, shelves that are behind the glass doors. On one of them, I keep my Hans Urs von Balthasar collection. And behind the other, I keep uh, Church Dogmatics. A a good combination. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's your Swiss shelf. It really is. (laughs) And, I mean, frankly, it's my multi-volume theology that I've only dipped into, but I can pretend that I'm familiar with it shelf. You just got to put Denis de Rochemont up there now. (laughs) <laughs> Love in the Western world. Then you've got all your uh, you got all your Swiss theologians. Well, the, there was a time that I tried also to cram uh, Frederick Copleston's entire nine-volume history of philosophy in that same collection, but they would all three of those wouldn't fit. So I moved Copleston over with my biblical studies. Uh, awesome. Well, I have a I have an in front of my desk bookshelf and a behind my desk bookshelf. Um, I only have the two in my office. Um, the one that's behind my desk is, uh, top shelf is, uh, Bible patristics and, uh, uh, sort of Greek and Roman philosophers. Next shelf down is old English. Well, actually the next, yeah, the next, the next shelf down is, is old English. Next shelf down from that is, uh, chivalric romance down from that uh, other Middle English lit and other uh, uh, continental European lit. Next shelf down from that is exclusively Viking stuff. (laughs) And the bottom bottom shelf is uh, English Renaissance. And then I've got like a little skinny second uh, set of shelves that are kind of off to the left and that's where my dictionaries and encyclopedias that are kind of outsized they go they go there that's mm-hmm. that's my behind the desk um and and frankly i do judge students by whether or not uh they want to come behind the desk and look at those mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. um oh I, sh- I should note one more thing and again i'm sorry i'm working from memory but on top of the biblical studies bookcase which is not quite six foot. I think it's five foot. It's an it's an irregular irregular sized one. Uh, mm-hmm. But I have uh, all of my medieval English stuff, so old English, Middle English collections. Um, and because it's on top of the shelf, I need bookends for it. So I have acquired a pair of dragon shaped bookends for that collection. Excellent. I have no doubt that you have acquired a pair of dragon shaped <laughs> bookends. <laughs> Famous. Because students look up there, and it's almost as if I have a couple of uh, gargoyles guarding my office. <laughs> nice. Um, my front of desk bookshelf uh, is is it's the one that's got like a little Gandalf action figure on it and stuff. Um, that one has um, my Tolkien stuff, uh, my other Inklings stuff. 
Um, it has a shelf of uh, basically books I've collected from various um, adventure and uh, kind of juvenile book series from before 1950. Um it's where I keep my first edition of the very first Nancy Drew book, um, <laughs> which I'm wicked proud of. Um, my Sherlock Holmes, my Poe, and my H.P. Lovecraft, I keep on that shelf. And that that's kind of my Rorschach shelf. I find out whether or not my student is is a reader and what they read based on what shelf they notice. Um yeah. And now, it's, now it's, where do you keep the artifacts from your archaeological journeys all over the world with your bullwhip and fedora, David? <laughs> um, well, actually, I have a little shadow box between the two windows on the the east uh, the east wall of my office. That's that's where I keep my relics. Um, though, oh, I forgot. I have a I have another skinny bookshelf. It's a it's it's very skinny. I made it. Um, but it's the one that has travel books from um, most of them from the mid 1800s up to about up to about 1940. Um, I've got a couple of world atlases from before World War II, um, other other kinds of books uh, on there um, of exploration and travels and whatnot. And there's a pith helmet at the to- on the top of that shelf. So, you really are much more whimsical than I am, David. Mm-hmm. I'm dang whimsical, man. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I I love it when people come into my office and they just kind of look around. Um, over over my uh, before for in front of desk bookshelf, I have two paintings, um, uh, each with the caption "The Life of uh, the Life of a Hunter." Um, they must have been from a collection of prints. But in one of them, some poor sap without a gun is being attacked by a bear. And in the other, um, similar similar sap without gun is being attacked by a buck. Like so, it's it's they're they're kind of awesome. It's like hunting situations <laughs> gone terribly wrong. Yeah, I really think we need to post pictures of all the stuff to the Facebook uh, page. I think we can make that happen. Awesome. Well, enough enough of me showing off my showing off my office and maybe giving a little bit of a window into why on earth I would ever browse a better homes and gardens. <laughs> You've put some thought into this, man. Yeah, I'm I'm actually starting to be a little bit ashamed of myself. You shouldn't be. <laughs> Let me well. tell you about the decor in my office. I have a uh, I have a silly painting that is a uh, a fancy landscape with a cartoon sun giving a double thumbs up, and yes, the sun is wearing sunglasses. It is awesome. That is a that is an awesome painting. Yeah, I've seen that painting. It's a great one. And then I have a bunch of Disney figurines, like an eight year old. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, uh, I I'm jealous of you. All right. Well, cool. Well, because I'm actually feeling super self-conscious now, I'm going to move to our next question. Um, okay, some of our books. Well, okay, you guys are readers, so you understand the. You, I'm assuming you understand the idea of books as friends. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're going to start with you, Nathan. But some books are our old friends, and 
you know, we constantly reread them or when people ask us what kind of things we like to read, they're the books that we reference because they're kind of like our, they're, they're our book best friend. Mm-hmm. Um, so which books do you consistently reread and why? And do you reread more nonfiction or more fiction? Uh, the answer is more poetry. So if we're going ah. Dewey Decimal nonfiction, but I mean, there are stories that, you know, you couldn't actually verify with, you know, proper archaeological methods. So I'm not sure where they fit. Um, <laughs> every summer I try and I have a pretty good batting average. I, I you know, I, I don't do it with perfection, but I do it pretty reliably. I try to reread Dante's entire Commedia and I try to read Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained every summer. No. Um, and that's one of those things because those books are at the same time narrative and theological and philosophical and psychological. Uh, they're kind of a good uh, battery recharge so that I can launch back into a more specialized course of reading when I teach my courses in the fall. Um, so that's something that I, I definitely revisit. And then the other habit that I got into in grad school, largely because I was drowning in literary theory is I try every Christmas break to reread an epic. So Mm. over a Christmas break, I might reread the Odyssey. I might reread the Aeneid. I might reread the Metamorphoses. uh, I might reread the Mort d'Arthur. I've never tried to do uh, Fairy Queen over spring break because I I do have a modicum of humility. Uh, But, I mean, that's generally what I try to do. And, you know, epics, like I said, because they are such expansive texts, because they do so many things, uh, they sort of help to recenter me, if you will, so that I can go back and do more specialized work later. How about you, Michael? I, um, hmm. my father is an engineer. I'm not sure if I've ever mentioned that on this show, and I have inherited a love of systems. So I, I don't, I don't read things on whims for the most part. I have to construct elaborate systems often involving chance coin flips, random number generators that will, uh, that will tell me. Color-coded spreadsheets. Don't forget the color-coded spreadsheets. (laughs) It's mostly just grading. Although I did, I did used to have a color-coded chronological list of great books that I was going through. I ended up giving up on that. uh, Although I read (laughs) centuries and centuries of books for five, six years. Uh, so right now I'm not reading anything for pleasure, except it's not even for pleasure for this book I'm writing. But uh, other times I have a rather complicated and embarrassing system that allows me to decide what to read next. The only things I return to frequently are things I teach frequently, and those are the usual suspects for things I talk about on this on this uh, this program. Uh, stuff that I, I teach across classes: Nietzsche, and Kierkegaard, and Walker Percy, Flannery O'Connor, people I, ju- I just teach a lot. Those are the ones I return to a lot. Other than that, I have this embarrassing system uh, of which nobody will ever <laughs> learn any particular details. How arcane. <laughs> See, it's the opposite of whimsical. I'm, 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 a, I, I'm, I'm essentially a clockwork machine. Mm. Whereas David is made of cotton candy. <laughs> He's like Kirby. Remember Kirby from the Game Boy? Yeah. I don't remember what he was, but I remember that he was kind of blob-shaped. He was pink and he could fly. I don't know. I was just thinking thinking (laughs) of something. My Game Boy didn't have color. I was just thinking of something whimsical, David. Uh, Okay. 
Um, well, I reread uh, most of what I reread is is fiction. Um, nobody's going to be surprised if I name Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Nor will anyone be surprised if I name Lovecraft. Um, uh, maybe uh, Dorothy Sayers' mystery fiction, um, her Lord Peter Whimsy books. There's um, there's that word again. What <laughs> uh, Whimsy? Well, there you go. Um, I, I I go through them um, periodically, uh, but some that I don't know. Some that some that people uh, some 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 odd guesses. Um, I pretty regularly read um, Lamort D'Arthur. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a novel by a guy named uh, E.R. Edison from the mid the mid 30s called The Worm Arborus. Um, it's a very early fantasy novel. Um, it's I mean it's it's before Tolkien was doing his stuff. Um, I've heard of that, but I heard he ripped it off from E.R. Tesla. <laughs> oh, God. Heaven help us. Yeah. Anyway, I, I love I love the Worm Robberus. Um I, I pretty regularly work back through that one. Um the nonfiction that I regularly revisit is Bernardo Clairvaux's on Loving God and Augustine's in Caridium. The, those I come back to pretty frequently. But other than that, um I, I don't have a lot of rinse repeat in my reading anymore. I used to reread a lot of books, but I don't reread as much now as I used to. Do you feel guilty I, about that, David? In some ways, yeah. Cause it's and, two impulses, right? Cause, cause not rereading makes you kind of a consumer. Roland Bart talks about this in death of the author. Like, like the, the very notion of the author is you can read it once and discard it and then you can go buy your next book. But on the other hand, there's so many books to read. Right. Mm hmm. I mean, in some ways, in some ways, yeah, I, I, I do, I, I do feel bad about that. But on the other hand, um, there's just so much more now that I have to read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that re, that uh, I've gotten to the point now where I'm like, okay, I'm, I, this may be the last time I read this for a while, so pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I I don't browse as much as I used to. I guess. Up Updike has this essay where he he's talking about flying on a plane to China. He must be seventy at the time, and he's he's reading Portrait of a Lady for the third or fourth time, and he realizes, oh my gosh, this is the last time I'm ever going to read this book. Hmm. Which hmm. is a weird thing to think about. Hmm. Yeah. I, I was. Uh... I, I I don't know what 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 led to it, but a couple of my friends on Facebook were were linking, um, maybe some some website or, or some blog or other had started that thread, but were um, linking to a, a sermon by by Spurgeon that was focused just on the verse from uh, I think it's Second Timothy where Paul asks Timothy to bring his cloak and bring his books and parchments mm-hmm. and the, and, and just the idea of, you know, in, in prison, in the face of death, um, an apostle who writes inspired stuff wants his books. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, for, for some reason I, 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 you, 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 you tell the one story, Michael, and I think of the other, you know, I hope I don't stop reading. 
Well, that See, funny. that's my favorite verse to bring up when people call the Bible an instruction book. <laughs> yeah, uh, I always say, have you have you carried a cloak to an Ephesian prison? <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> but that's a long story. <laughs> nice. Oh goodness, I, I managed to walk into another airplane reference. <laughs> Well, sometimes, uh, sometimes friends drift apart, including book friends. I'll start with you, Michael. Um, are there any books that you have, so to speak, uh, uh, outgrown or drifted away from? You know, the ones that you used to reread a lot or consider to be important influences on you, but they don't mean what they used to. I used to read Frederick Buechner's The Alphabet of Grace every November. Uh, it's mm. kind of a November book in my mind. It's very, like, late fall. Um, and that stopped partly because I've kind of cooled on Buechner as I've gotten older. I, I think he's kind of a gateway drug to Christian existentialism, and mm. I, 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 I find myself less interested in him for the most part. I, Alphabet of Grace is still wonderful. You like the hard stuff. I like the hard stuff. But um, <laughs> the other problem is November is a really lousy time for academics to read anything for fun. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> usually usually in November, my brain is is one stress away from shutting down for good. Um, mm. So maybe I should pick a different month to read that. I, I actually read it over Christmas break this year and enjoyed it um, even more than I remembered enjoying it. But uh, – that that is that is the one that comes to mind of something I I made an effort to read every year for like ten years, and then eventually just couldn't couldn't do it anymore because of uh, because of life interfering. Mm. Mm -hmm. What about you, Nathan? Well, uh, you know, as far as books that I used to read a lot more of, uh, there's no particular books that I used to reread that I still don't. I mean, those have pretty much stayed with me. Um, but as far as authors that I used to just, you know, gobble up, uh, William Gibson immediately comes to mind. I, uh, I actually have his most recent two novels and I've not started either of them yet. Whereas where I was, when I was a teenager, I read, uh, Neuromancer and Count Zero and Mona Lisa Overdrive at least three times each. Oh, man. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I, I taught mean, I was, Neuromancer last semester for a a guided study on science fiction. I hated that book. <laughs> Just hated it. Well, I mean, I, I, cyberpunk was my world back in the early nineties. So, uh, you know, that's definitely a, a genre of fiction. First of all, because cyberpunk as a subgenre is almost unintelligible now mm. because it frankly just didn't anticipate most of the really big technological innovations of the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, but William Gibson, as an author, I mean, he sort of shifted towards more social commentary novels, for lack of a better term. And I just don't find them as interesting as I used to find his cyberpunk novels. Mm. Probably the one that um, I used to reread most and seek out most, um, but I haven't visited in, in forever, is Robert Louis Stevenson. Hmm. Um. I, I read and reread and reread and reread Treasure Island. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've read Treasure Island. Um, I probably read Kidnaps four or five times, but uh, and I and I would seek out everything that I could find by him. And some of it, I was like, I 
this does not scratch the same edge. Um, <laughs> but for whatever reason, I, I don't think I've I don't think I've looked at anything by him for probably fifteen plus years. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's kind of weird. Um, there also used to be a time when um, everything. Uh, you know uh, that there was there was a pretty strong run in the late nineties um when Christopher Tolkien was kind of slowly eking out everything of his father's that he could find <laughs> um you know ni- nice uh hard bound attractively covered um books that i don't know probably were like a napkin in, in tolkien's desk mm-hmm. but I, I I don't know what it was, you know, probably ten years ago or so. I just I just got to the point where I was like, you know, I, I don't I don't feel the need to go out and get any new Tolkien. I reread what I know, but I haven't read the Children of Huron. I haven't even seen his Beowulf translation, and I'm a Beowulf guy. Right. Although there is a review of it on uh, ChristianHumanist.org. Did you do that, Nathan? I thought we had David review that book. Nope. Nathan did no, that. No, I did that one. Yeah. Apologies. Nathan did that. <laughs> I mean, I, I I feel kind of bad about not doing that, but well, honestly, David, it is not nearly the holy grail that I hoped it would be. Ah, okay. Because I mean, it, like you just said, I mean, it's not really a literary translation of Beowulf the way that Roy Liuza or Seamus Heaney made a literary translation of Beowulf. It's, it's his, his lecture notes. notes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, and I've got my own lecture notes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Though, you know, I'd like to see his, but not to read for pleasure. That's, that's honestly the best part of the book, and I mean, I'm going to use it yeah. heavily next time I teach Beowulf in the original. Yeah. I, okay, I, I should probably get it for that reason. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I just don't feel, the, I don't feel the urge to hunt that down the way I used to. I used to read a lot of, of more contemporary fantasy. A lot of fantasy lit, I consumed. But these days, I've... I, the, the newest fiction, the most recent fiction that I that I reread, um, or that 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 I I read is by uh, Tim Powers, who does kind of alternate history kind of magical realism. I don't even know what to call it. Stuff, secret history is is probably the best. Um, you know, I'll I'll read him, but other than that, everything I read is old. Hmm. Um, and and it's been probably five years since I read a new Tim Powers book. Man, I'm depressing myself. <laughs> well, speaking of weird senses of guilt, um, yeah, I, I I often have a weird sense of guilt uh, associated with um, with books that I haven't read or haven't finished. So, yeah, Nathan. Um, I don't know. I, I I don't know if you strike me as 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 guilty a person as I am, but <laughs> um, are, are there any books that you haven't read or haven't finished reading, and that weighs heavy on your soul? It's not necessarily that it rests heavy on my soul so much as it makes conversations awkward. Uh, <laughs> because whenever I tell people that I teach English for a living, the first thing they want to talk about is their favorite Charles Dickens novel. And oh. I have never read a Charles Dickens novel not called Great Expectations. <laughs> Me neither. So, um, you know, I mean, so things from the 19th and 20th centuries that everyone presumably has supposed has read, 
Uh, generally, I've not touched them, so that's the awkward part. As far as books that I've started but not finished, I mean, my my white whale, if you will, is uh, Ulysses by James Joyce. Uh, I've read uh, Division One, which is roughly speaking, Michael. If I get this page, uh, I have never no. read Ulysses. Oh, okay. So I'll, I'll just say it's the first hundred pages, and you won't be able to correct me. But I've never even picked it up. I, I've read Division One, I think, five different times, and I've never finished Division Two, which is about five hundred pages. Uh, so that's one of those that I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm still delusional enough to think that someday I will finish Ulysses, but it hasn't happened yet. What about In Search of Things Past? Search of Lost Time, Remembrance of Things Past. I've never even heard of that one. Proust? No. I, like I said, Michael, I just said modern novels. I've not read them. <laughs> I've never even picked up Proust either. Oh, goodness. Yeah, yeah. So. And I, know, I know I should because, well, number one, I wrote a paper on nostalgia, and that's like the Ur text. But also, like, every every person I love loves Proust and I'm the, the, the thought of spending six months of my life reading that 3000 page French modernist novel just fills me with ennui. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Watch it now. Horror, well, horror my, and loathing. You've already, you, you've already picked up my fumble. So get run with it, man. I, I've never read Ulysses. Never even tried to. I got halfway through gravity's rainbow and gave up. Uh, I tried to read uh, war and peace twice. And 500 pages in, I realized I had not reached the halfway point and I had to <laughs> put the book back on my shelf. I mean, there's there's lots of stuff I started and never finished, especially nonfiction. I, I almost never finish a book of philosophy. I just kind of flip around in it. Uh, I remember buying Critique of Pure Reason when I was in graduate school and getting three pages in and never opening it again. I should I should go back to that one. I, I have a better <laughs> understanding well, of what he's trying God. to do. I know you're busy right now, but I've I've actually thought about blogging through that this summer. Nope. Okay. All right. <laughs> you can do it yourself if you'd like. I, I will do it myself then. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, just because the last few summers, I mean, that's been a good practice for me to right. Yeah, well, we, we did truth and we did truth and method, and that was uh, that was a uh, that was a lot of fun. But I I don't have time this summer. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. So yeah, I mean, you know my saying: life is guilt. Uh, so yeah, I feel guilty about having not read things that I quote unquote should have read. And I feel guilty about starting things that I didn't finish, but also there's only so much time in the world and there's only so many books you can read. And, mm. uh, you know, I, I have to prioritize at some point. Yeah. Still, I feel bad about not reading Proust. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what it is, but I feel... I, I still feel I, I I see what you mean, Michael. The, there's there's particular things that you're like that's that's so closely adjunct to the things that I say are my things that the fact that I don't know it is you know troubling. Though I don't know. I th I think since I got into um, I think since I started the my PhD, I started feeling less guilty about not knowing things that were kind of outside of the areas that I claim specialty in. At a certain point, you just have to recognize there's too much for you to know everything. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you have to make choices. Yes. And that, that was, that was a beautifully liberating thing when I was like, you know what? I'm a medievalist. I don't need to know Anna Karenina. Never read that either. 
Yeah. I don't even know how many ends it's got in it. <laughs> Lots of them. You know, I've never read anything by a Russian outside of, like, one short story by Tolstoy. Um, I've never, you know, I've never read anything by Bronte. Um, I've never read, I, I've read one novel by Austin. Wait, are you uh, a homeschooler who somehow didn't read Wuthering Heights? Didn't read Wuthering Heights. <laughs> I I did see the Wuthering Heights and Semaphore sketch in Money Python. Oh, fair, fair. That's that's probably the same thing. <laughs> yes, yes, basically. My wife just gave an enormous thumbs down to Wuthering Heights, by the way. <laughs> if any of our listeners were curious how she felt about it, well, no. Okay, I can proudly say that I have never read that awful book your wife doesn't like. <laughs> you're, you're, it, was a, it was a conscious choice. It is, yeah. it is true, though. People, people find out you teach English, and they're always horrified that you don't know... X book. What, whatever book, you know, whatever books you know, it's always one you don't. Right. Yeah. Or they find out you don't like Tolkien, in my case, or you don't mm-hmm. like John Bunyan. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, for my students, it's it's the I haven't read books that they had to read in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I've never oh, let's see what's the, I've never read Lord of the Flies. Never read it. Have no interest in reading it. You, you and, don't need to. It's a, it's I know. A, it's a children's version of Heart of Darkness. Right. Which you've also never read. Which I've also never read. <laughs> I, was, never I, read I, I have like another that. one I started but didn't finish. Lord Jim. Yeah. Um, well, and Nathan described uh, Ulysses as his white whale. Um, well, my white whale is the white whale. Uh, <laughs> well, we got to do a, something about that, David. You I, would love that book. Well, but see, here's the thing: I, I have tried, I have tried to read Moby Dick multiple times. I've, I've probably started it half a dozen times. I took a course on Melville just to make myself finish reading Moby Dick. Still didn't happen. I never finished Huckleberry Finn until I had to teach it. Okay. So, <laughs> but see, here's the thing. I've read, you know, I've read Taipei. I've read Omu. I've read Redburn. I've read Pierre. <laughs> but I've never <laughs> finished Moby Dick. Moby Dick seems like such a medieval book to me. It seems like such a, like a, oh, what, a palimpsest. Yeah. I, I don't know. Just, just never finished it. I like it. I like I like I like Ishmael's narrative voice. I've just never actually finished reading it. Inexplicable. Well, on that sad note, as we expose our our weakness, um, I guess we should end with something more cheerful, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, summer reading, summer reading recommendations. Um, what should our listeners take to the beach or whatever? Or are we going to beaches and are we taking things or, you know, you're, you're, you're going to blog through critique of pure reason. Apparently, I'm going to try to, there's a beach read. <laughs> 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 I just imagined, uh, Emmanuel Kant in a speedo. Oh, <laughs> oh. still wearing wait, the wait. powdered wig though. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. With the wig. Oh, that's alarming. Yes, Michael, carry on, sir. Uh, it may say something about my personality that when you asked for beach reads, the first thing I thought of was The Stranger by Albert Camus, <laughs> <laughs> which does involve a beach. That's true. 
there's the theme. that. I'm going to recommend something um, a little less depressing, although not much. Um, the novels of Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She's famous now, but uh, I, I read her first two novels, Purple Hibiscus and The Half of a Yellow Sun. Um, they're they're really wonderful, moving books that aren't just a slog. Although, uh, you know, Half of a Yellow Sun's about the Biafran War. So it's not going to be cheerful, exactly. But it, it's very human and affirming somehow. Um, she's a contemporary Nigerian novelist, a uh, feminist novelist, I suppose you could call her. Although I, I think that's a narrow uh, a narrow word for what she, what she's doing in those books. I think even if you're not interested in feminism, those, those books will uh, probably do something for you. So that is my recommendation for the summer. Could you spell her name so that our listeners could get somewhere close in a Google search? I can spell Adichie. Uh, it's <laughs> A-D-I-C-H-I-E. Okay. There you go. Awesome. Uh, and I will say that, you know, if you're looking for something that you can read while distracted, which is generally the state of things in my summer because I'm, you know, watching my kids trying to, you know, get to them when they injure each other, not if but when, Um you know what I've what I've found enjoyable is to go back to you know some of the sort of some of the great children's books. I'll put it that way. Mm. I mean, so something like the Chronicles of Narnia or something like uh, the Little Prince is something that's a lot of fun to read, uh, and you can put it down quickly if you know one of the kids hits the other uh, with a bat. <laughs> Or, or or sharks. Although reading The Little Prince while you're watching your children is gonna that's gonna do something complicated to your emotional state. Stay away from that <laughs> snake. <laughs> yes, yes. Nathan's good advice from little from the Little Prince episode <laughs> repeated. Do not trust the talking snakes. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, you know, I, I would recommend um Oh, I guess first first fiction. Um, I, I I don't know uh, if if you if you like mysteries. If you're a mystery person, um, Dorothy Sayers' Lord Peter Wimsey novels are awesome. Also, if you remember Agatha Christie being good from when you were a teenager, she's still pretty good. So you know, that's good. Um, if you're interested in reading theology on the beach. Um, I, I would hark back to one that I enjoyed very much. Uh, Fred Sanders, Deep Things of God is, uh, is a great book. Um, if you're one who likes to do your reading without actually reading, um, I recommend LibriVox for the free audio books. And, you know, you can find um, a lot of the classic texts that we talk about um, there, if you're one who wants to get your great books reading done without actually having to hold a book in your hands, um, though I feel kind of dirty in recommending it. Still, um, hey, you know, get a book by any means, right? So, yeah, our book episode. I guess, I guess that's, I guess that's it. This is was this was this one painfully self-revelatory? Or are, are people going <laughs> to like us anymore? I don't know. I referenced my weirdo system for deciding what to read I, I had hoped nobody would ever find out about that my wife almost divorced me when she found out <laughs> I'm sure that's an exaggeration wow that, that the pause afterwards um, 
Well, uh, I guess I won't ask what our next episode is about because this is the last one for this uh, semester, right? Well, it'll probably be a uh, listener feedback episode, so. Yeah. Okay. And it'll come Some... sometime in May. May or June. Yeah. Okay. Cool beans. Well, dear listeners, if you have uh, any questions about this particular episode, um, you know, if you want the particulars of Michael's arcane system so that you, you can adopt it. <laughs> you won't get them. If you want to speculate about the details of Michael's arcane system, you can do so in the show notes of the blog posts um, corresponding to this episode when it you know, goes up on the blog, christianhumanist.org. You can also send us email, and hey, the next one's an email episode, so there's still time to get in there. Um, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, we have other shows, even though this one is, is going on um, at least uh, intermittent mode uh, through the summer. We've still got uh, some profiles that are queued up, and they'll, they'll keep coming for a while, and I think... Uh, Oh, I think Pietist Schoolman is still uh, working through um, Chris Garrett's uh, excellent backlog of interviews. So we'll have some stuff that's kind of coming out, so check back. In the meanwhile, uh, I'm David Grubbs, wishing you all grand weeks on behalf of Nathan Gilmore and Michael Farmer. Um, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our intern is still Zach Smith. Let your sin be strong and let your faith be stronger.